0: I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and social impact. Welcome back to the second part of my conversation with Alan Murray, the CEO of Fortune Media. He just got so excited because we're having this great conversation that we ran so long that I wanted to cut this into two parts because. Alan has had a seat at the table with CEOs from around the globe for decades, and he has seen and witnessed the transformation of companies from shareholder-based management to stakeholder-based management, or as he calls it, creating human-centered organizations. This conversation with Alan, part one and part two, is a playbook For all of my listeners who are in any part of their journey and purpose, it has incredible insights in terms of CEOs and how they have transformed their companies, their, oh my God, moments in time where they began to shift. And Alan just puts it in such a way to say this is now the new way for business to go forth because there's a war for talent employees are at the center and there's so much insights in here just let us know what you thought about this two-party with Alan because we're going to have him back um, in six or nine months maybe a year and we're going to ask him how it's going how much more uh, companies are evolving and changing so join me for part two What do you feel are the most prominent issues CEOs feel they must tackle today?
1: So it's
0: interesting. I've had a a great
1: opportunity to sort of test this uh, in the conversations that we've had at the CEO initiative. I think in the first years, it was clear that the thing they felt uh, most, I wouldn't say passionate about, but responsible for was growing inequality and the lack of uh, of adequate opportunity, you know, there was a sense that the uh, uh, John Kennedy said a rising tide lifts all boats. So there was kind of a sense that developed over the last decade that not all boats were rising and the escalator of mobility that we had always been so proud of in American society had somehow broken down. And I think that one hit the CEOs more directly because they're the ones who create jobs. Right. So there was a, there was a really a lot of really good conversations about what can we do to get that escalator moving again, and and I think there's been good work on that. You know, one one thing was just as a starting point for these big companies to go into their job postings and eliminate uh, for you know four year degree requirements where they're not necessary. Uh, that too often they were using credentials as a proxy for skills. And so a lot of the companies that we've been working with have done that, have said, Hey, you know, uh, uh, half of these jobs really don't require a four year degree. They require a certain set of skills. And there are people out there who have those skills that we're cutting out. So let's, let's redefine them. And, and then, and then the second piece was having done that, geez, can we create Apprenticeship programs that bring people into the company, maybe a little before they're ready, but people who we think have the basic talent and we provide them the training either internally or externally to get them on the path so they can have successful careers at this company. So there's, there, there, are, there are a lot of things like that going on. And then you see you know, even companies like Starbucks, what they're doing to make sure that the people who their baristas have access to good education. I mean, there's just been a lot of focus on that. So I would say that's number one. And and uh, number two is uh, related diversity, equity and inclusion. I mean, business has really moved to, if not the forefront, certainly close to the forefront of the social equity. Debate in this country, uh, starting with their own people, uh, and then and then the third, uh, but but in the long run, probably the biggest is climate, taking responsibility for climate. And again, we you've seen just the geometric explosion of companies making net zero 2050 commitments over the last two years.
0: Yeah, and then how amazing when when Microsoft said not only they, they're going to get into net zero, they were going to go back in time from the very beginning to offset all of their omissions and such, which was like an amazing proclamation.
1: Yeah. Yes. You know, Satya Nadella was our very first guest on Leadership Next uh, two years ago. Oh, I love him. He's great. And also uh, spoke at our CEO initiative meeting at, in Davos in uh, right before the pandemic started in January of 2020 to talk about those commitments. And what's pat- What's powerful about that, Carol, that I didn't fully realize until recently, when these big companies like Microsoft and and Walmart make these commitments and are serious about the commitments, it it has an enormous effect down the line. The ripple effect is really big. The ripple effect is huge. Uh, uh, You know, I, I think it was a few months ago, uh, we had Soren Sku, who is the CEO of Maersk, the big global shipping company, uh, uh, at one of our events, and he was talking about a big investment that they're making to with the, a Danish power company to put wind farms in the North Sea to manufacture hydrogen fuel for their ships. And I, as I always do, I said to him, "Why are you doing this?" And he said, "I'm doing it because I keep getting calls from my customers who say." I just made a commitment to get carbon emissions out of my transportation within 10 years. And if you don't do this, I can't meet my commitment uh, and I won't be able to use your shipping. So you you really start to see the downstream effects that these commitments have. It's, it's pretty powerful. And I
0: love the fact that Microsoft was number one on the list of the modern board 25. And so let's, I want to flip to that because it's not just the CEO that is having the significant intellectual shift. It's also boards. So, you know, kudos to you. You just announced this. Can you talk about like, why do you created this initiative and how are boards changing?
1: I think it's really important. You know, a lot of the skeptics about this uh, movement. I remember having this conversation with Anand Jiri Haradas, who has um, written a couple of books that are is very critical of the corporate movement towards ESG and social responsibility and so forth. And the reason he's critical is because he says, hey, these are these CEOs aren't accountable to anyone. Like this, these are government responsibilities. I don't want CEOs to be trying to make society better. I want the government to be trying to make society better. Well, uh, I have two answers to that. <laughs> yeah. One is the government's not doing it, no. so some, better somebody does. But the second answer is, well, in theory, they are accountable. They're accountable to their boards. So let's look at board governance. Uh, and are and boards taking on the mantle of stakeholder capitalism, that they're responsible not just for making sure that the company delivers on its commitments to its shareholders, but also on its broader commitments to society. And that's why I think uh, the modern board ranking, which we just started a couple of weeks ago, is so important to make sure that boards are made up not just to represent shareholders, but to represent society, because this is where CEO accountability happens.
0: And you did it with diligent. So can you talk a little bit about the methodology? Because I know when you when fortune comes out with the rankings and ratings, as well as just capital, we get our clients the next day, you know, we're getting the email, how do I get on this list? What do I do? So can you give us a little bit of a behind the curtain of the methodology for the modern board?
1: Diligent uh, has a software platform that is used by tens of thousands of boards, which gives them unique access to data on these issues. And so that was the reason to partner uh, with with Diligent. They they had the data to make this work. And look, we've tried to come up with the right um, criteria for uh, experience, uh, for diversity of, of viewpoints. Um, uh, uh, we we you can read the methodology note I won't go into it i I couldn't go into it in too much detail. Diligent has an institute that helped us with this okay oh, this is, this is our first try at this i don't know if we i don't know if we got it perfect or we got it right, but the effort is to say, hey these are the the kinds the kinds of people and the kinds of skills and the independence independence is an important part of it that you need to successfully navigate through this new Uh, new world. And so that was that was how we we judge them. And we'll have to see if our ranking holds up over time and hopefully we can improve it over time. But but I do think it's really important that uh, that you start with boards because boards are where the accountability lies.
0: And since you um, have done this, what are the boards really drilling down on in terms of the areas of um, stakeholder capitalism?
1: Uh, definitely climate. I think they understand the importance of employees and monitoring the employee experience. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I mean, traditionally, boards have been made up of like former CEOs, people who used to be something else. And, And that's created a little bit of a problem for them because the world is changing so fast. And all these things that we're talking about may not have existed when they were in the CEO's job. So they they have a lot to learn. I think that's the other thing that motivated our partnership with Diligent was you, you, we can't afford in a society where things are changing this rapidly and where companies are, sta- are stepping up and taking on these big social geopolitical responsibilities – we can't afford to have boards that are behind the times. And, and, and so it, it, it's it both becomes a question of how do you pick directors, but it also becomes a, a question of educating directors. And we've started a newsletter that is designed to help do that and a community that's designed to help do that.
0: You really take the responsibility of building community, educating incredibly well. So so kudos to you. I'd like to talk about leadership qualities because you talk about that in your book. And what are the new? I, I love that that uh, Hubert Jolie or Hubert Jolly, if you want to the French accent, <laughs> who I, I met for the first time at a just event, and I adore him. He's going to be on he's the wonderful. show. Yeah, his wife's great. His wife's great too.
1: I haven't met his wife, but he's he he'll, he'll he, your all your podcast listeners should tune in for that one. He's a he's a delightful. Leader,
0: it'll be it'll be great. So he says that the new model of business management today requires leaders who can create an environment that unleashes human magic.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, I and, love that. It's great. And, and, and so you know, Carol, let me let me put that in historical context as well. You know, again, go back fifty years. The corporation of that time was kind of an information hierarchy you had all these people out in the field who were selling, doing whatever the company does, collecting information, they would pass that information up the hierarchy. It would go to the top, and the CEO and and his or her team, although in those days it was mostly his team, um, would take all that information, devise a strategy, and then send the orders back down, right? So it was, you know, information up, have a strategy, we tell you what to do. No company works that way today. You can't work that way today. Things are moving way too fast. If you wait for somebody at the top to tell you what to do, you will already have missed the curve. And so leadership becomes very different. It's much less about telling people what to do and much more about inspiring them, motivating them, attracting them, giving the guide, the moral guidelines that they have to operate in, giving them the North star that they have to approach. And I think that's what Hubert Jolie means when he talks about the magic Uh, leadership, uh, leadership is just very different, very different.
0: And how do leaders today, how do they, how do they know how to be empathetic? I mean, isn't that something you just feel? Can you learn to be empath- to
1: empathetic? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Carol. I don't, I'm not sure I know the answer. What I can tell you for certain is there were no classes in empathy in business school. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it, it's just not. I, I mean, there's a wonderful short Twitter video that I would urge your listeners to search and watch that uh, Arnie Sorensen, who was CEO of Marriott, who died uh, of cancer. Uh, last year, but he was CEO of Marriott. And when the moment came in 2020, where he realized that his business had gone almost to zero, right? You know, you're in the hotel business. Nobody is staying in hotels. It was just, it dried up and that he was going to have to do furloughs and layoffs on a massive scale. And he recorded this Twitter video uh, uh, to communicate to all the Marriott employees about what was going to happen and what they were what he was going to do to try and support them through this tough time. Uh, And and I I think it's even It's just such a moving thing to watch, even more moving because he was well into his fight with cancer at the time. And, you know, it was visible in, in his appearance, but it was just a powerful way of, of communicating and demonstrating vulnerability and empathy with employees that, you know, as somebody who's watched this for a a long time would have was, is so different than anything we saw 10 years ago. That was not the way Jack Welch led General Electric, you know. It was not uh, showing vulnerability was, you know, 10, 20 years ago was a no, no for leaders. But but when you're trying to when you're trying to create a movement, when when your company's success depends on the emotional connection with your employees, that kind of authenticity and vulnerability and empathy becomes just much more important.
0: Let's talk about empowering work, a workforce further You know, you're talking about, it it was in your daily today, you're talking about the battle for talent. Talent is winning. You know, they don't want to come back to work. They're going to be part-time. They're going to work, whatever. And, you know, we can have talent. I mean, my Carol Cone on Purpose is totally distributed. We're virtual. Um, And uh, we've got people from, you know, Mexico to Europe to Halifax, Nova Scotia. So, um, and I'm in Florida. So, how do you empower the workforce today in, in a in a company that is leaning into it, whether it's Salesforce or, or others, um, you know, to distributed talent?
1: I, I don't think anybody's cracked that nut yet, Carol. And I think it's an incredibly important question. What we learned during the pandemic was that distributed talent work from home could be every bit as productive, if not more productive than working in an office. Uh, you know, you take away the commute times. I, I live in the New York City area. My commute is anywhere from an hour to an hour and forty-five minutes, depending on the traffic. And you know, you you take back all that commuting time and and the efficiency of Zoom calls. We learned that people could be very productive, but I firmly believe there was something lost. Human human beings are social animals. I can feel it in my own organization. You know, the people who knew each other and worked together every day and then moved to Zoom calls, they were fine. But the trust between organizations and the onboarding of new people, it just didn't work as well. And, and you see that in the great resignation. I mean, people in the last year, you you see these stories about people who take jobs and then leave them within three months. We had some of those people, you know, people who, who, who took a job and left it and were never even in the office, never met anyone face to face. So I, I think we have both an opportunity and a challenge. There were lots of lots of things about office work that were soul crushing, right? That's why the Dilbert comic strip worked. That's why The Office was a great show to watch. <laughs> There was a great deal of soul crushing stuff that went on in offices, but there was also important stuff that happened. Person, you know, the kind of personal connection that only happens when you're face to face with somebody. It's just different. You know, we, we are the, you, you're, you got all the senses operating. Uh, um, and so, how do we rebuild a workplace that, on the one hand, gives people the flexibility that they have earned? during the pandemic to, you know, figure out when they can do their work from home, but also recreates those social experiences that are so important to keeping organizations together and the level of trust high. And I, I talked to, uh, I talked to CEOs almost every day about this and, uh, People are trying different things and they're redesigning offices and some are saying three days a week and some are saying two days a week. Uh, I I don't think anybody has found the silver bullet yet. There may not be a silver bullet because we are people and we all have different needs.
0: There you go. Um, I want to turn to the whole issue of CEOs as activists. Yeah. Because they can't stand on the sidelines anymore and they're getting dragged. You you talked a little bit earlier, but I want to talk about it like Currently, it is tough. How does the CEO decide where to engage, when to engage, how to engage, and when not to engage?
1: Yeah, it's really tough. And I think this comes back to a question you asked at the beginning, which is, do corporations really have a soul? Because it's the soul and the values derived from that that drive this. You you, can't, you obviously can't get involved in any everything at all. It'll kill you and kill your workforce, but you you do have to decide the things that really matter to you as a company and be willing to take a stand on that and and it's hard and you know what you said in one of your d-
0: dailies you said the storm always finds you
1: yeah <laughs> and th- there's a social media piece to that you know it's it these these CEOs live in a in a uh, in a glass bowl in a way they didn't uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I mean, the tipping point for that was the the uh, moment when that Dr. David Dow was dragged off of a United Airplane in, was that in Chicago? Somewhere in the Midwest, dragged off a United Airplane. It's captured by video um, within literally within 24 hours, people in China, the other side of the world are canceling United flights because of their mistreatment. And, and, the, and, and the CEO, and this is really instructive, the CEO uh, at the time, you know, knew that the people, the, the two guys who dragged the, the doctor off the plane were not United employees and was involved in some pretty difficult labor conversations. And so he decided to put out a statement standing up for his employees saying you did the right things, which only added fuel to the fire. Uh, And and it got even worse. Another great example of just how dramatically the world has changed. It's hard. It's hard. You have to you have to decide what your company values are. You have to be willing to stand up for those values. But you also have to figure out how to do that without getting yourself caught in the nasty nature of current politics.
0: Yeah. I mean, I knew when Nike um, supported Colin Kaepernick, I'm a shoe dog. I grew up in the shoe industry. I knew that was exactly the right thing to do. And you know, the stock dove and then I knew it it climbed right back it up because out. yeah, because who's their constituent. So so that that's really important. Um I want to ask you a, a bit. You're a journalist and I know a lot of our listeners they've hopefully they've created very strategic um, authentic purpose stakeholder engaged programs. How do they get the communications out in the best effective way in today's snackable, hard to get anybody's attention. You're a journalist. You know, what's your advice to companies on their communications around their authentic
1: efforts? Well, first of all, it has to be authentic, right? Because journalists and the sniffers society at large the social social media crowd will figure it out quickly if it's not you can't do what bp tried to do a decade ago with you know we're going to call ourselves beyond petroleum even as we uh you know have these derricks in the gulf of mexico that are going to pollute the world so it does have to be authentic and and i know a lot of people who were in the public relations business who you know, have work for people who come to them and say, "Fix this problem for me." Get this message out there, and they go back and say, "Well, you, you can't get the message right without getting the thing right." Um, so, so I, I, I think that's the first thing. But second, look, it's it, there's both a challenge and an opportunity in terms of dealing with media. The challenge is. It's such a diverse set of players. They don't have the depth of the expertise that they did in the old days because they don't have time to develop depth or expertise. So it's very challenging dealing with the outside media world. That's the challenge. The opportunity is you don't really have to. You know, companies can do a lot of this on their own. They have lots of, you know, their your employees are an important source of communicating to the outside world, your social media channels. The truth is, if you look at Richard Edelman's surveys, the truth is people trust their employer more than they trust any of us in the media because the media has become such a diverse mess. I hate to say this as somebody who's been in media my whole life, but my advice is, first of all, if you're going to deal with the media, make sure you're dealing with someone you can trust in the media. But second, recognize your own power. You are a source of media and and be smart about how you use your employees and your customers and your whole range of stakeholders to communicate the values, which gets back to why it has to be authentic. You can't have one message for the world and a different message for your employees or your customers.
0: Yeah. You can't (laughs) say we're the best in DEI. And then you look at your, you know, your board, your, and your employee makeup, but it's not, it's like, Oh my God, you're, you're, you're definitely in trouble. I want to ask you about terms because um, I just wrote this blog. I I sent it off um, about there's all these different words. You know, there's there's uh, purpose and there's shared value and there's uh, CSR and ESG, whatever. ESG. Yeah. So I'm just curious about how you deal with the term. First, let's look, deal with the term purpose. Um. You know, can you just give us your definition of purpose, and then you know, why is that important for an organization to have a purpose?
1: So purpose is something we all understand innately. We all. Uh, need want to have a purpose in life. I think purpose for an organization is probably something that has always been there in the very best organizations. If you talk to somebody like Jim Collins, you you yeah. may have had him. Oh, on I, your and show. I've met
0: him. I love Jim Collins. Yeah, he's good. He, he,
1: he's a brilliant man, but he'll tell you there's nothing new under the sun. We've been <laughs> the best companies have been purpose driven from day one, and and you take a company like. Uh, 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 Johnson and Johnson, you know, they have their purpose written very clearly <laughs> their credo, on the, sure, yeah. their credo, and and they live by it. Everybody in the company knows it and understands it. So, I, so I do think that's something that has been pretty fundamental in terms of motivating people from the beginning. But again, what's changed? I, I think about this in terms of I, I try and keep myself out of it, but if I think about my father and think about my children how differently they approach the workplace. My father was a child of the Depression. I know he went to work to make money. If he wanted to do good in the world, he would go to his church, he would go to his Rotary Club meeting, whatever. But he went to work to make money my children are very different they don't belong to a church they don't belong to a rotary club the, the their employer is their in some ways it's definitely their most important in some ways their only formal connection to society and they just heap all those expectations on the employer so purpose is not new but the heaping of purpose expectations and ambitions on the employer is kind of new. And I think that's I think that's what has changed uh, uh, in the last 50 years. Okay,
0: let's talk about ESG, Yeah, because that is seems to be the hot term of the day. And we're getting all sorts of different. What does it mean? Is it this or that? So I'd love to hear from Alan Murray, the definition of ESG in relation to this entire conversation.
1: Well, it's it's a horrible term. I mean, you know, <laughs> okay. go, go, government bureaucracies are not the best place to come up with good. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. Semantics. It's environment, it's social, and it's government. We've talked about all three of those pieces. They're very important. I mean, in some ways, I go back to what I said earlier that what this is really about is creating human centered organizations. And yes, and, and the yes is explicitly about that uh uh organizations that pay attention to the needs of their employees and their customers um uh but the e the environmental part is is also the same in the long run people can't thrive if the planet doesn't thrive um a, a, is more complicated, but it kind of gets back to the conversation you and I were having about boards that you have to have a system of accountability in order to hold companies responsible if they're going to take on the environmental goals and the social goals. So they kind of all fit together, but they also can conflict and it's complicated. And I, I, I use the acronym, but I'm not crazy about it. Okay. What's your favorite acronym for this whole movement? I like stakeholder capitalism, but I think a lot of people don't really understand what that is either. So I think probably at the end of the day, the best way to talk about it is is human-centered capitalism, human-centered business. We're in a new era.
0: Okay, we're gonna give you a new name, human cent a new era. That's the second book. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's the next book. So, okay, so you write in the book, in the long run, there's no trade-off between purpose and profits. So can you highlight for C-suite leaders and their teams three of the most important areas they must think about on this whole new future
1: of business? Three most important areas that they have to focus on.
0: Uh, Sorry for the hard one. But then, of course, yeah, read the whole book because you'll have all this great, delicious
1: detail. It, it is hard. I, I mean, let, let's deal with the easiest first. Uh, I I I know climate science is filled with uncertainties and that we too often treat it as though it is is filled with certainties. Uh, i I recognize all of that but but I think the evidence now has reached the point where it's clear that the planet is in danger uh over the course of the next hundred years, and any company that wants to be around a hundred years from now needs to have a stake in making sure that the planet uh isn't destroyed over that period of time so So that one's easy. you have to incorporate that into your Uh, Your thinking and your planning and your long term strategy. Uh, The the second is the S, the social part, the people. And here is where diversity and equity and inclusion come in. You will not survive as a business if you're trying to survive on some subset of the workforce. Because there's just not enough people to go around, so you've got to you've got to make your commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then you've got to recognize what you and I talked about earlier that these people are the source of your value as a company. You've got to treat them well. You've got to look after their whole lives. You have to care about their mental health, and and if you don't do that, you will not survive. So I guess the third is that. It's now apparent in advanced societies that technology is driving increased inequality and that increased inequality over time will lead to social disruption. Uh, uh, So you you have to look beyond the, the walls, the confines of your company and ask yourself, what can I do to address this? How can I create a system that works better for everyone, not just better for my employees. So I guess those would be my three.
0: Oh, those are great. And of course, there's so much more. And the book Tomorrow's Capitalist is just rich with so much guidance. Um, I'm going to put it bookended next to Net Positive, which is Paul Pullman's book. And those are the two. Great book. Yeah. Uh, Great, great book. I want to ask you about issues. What issues do you wish companies would take on that maybe aren't the most popular or common. But Alan Murray says, I wish or the smart company should take on these issues.
1: It's a great question. I've been thinking about this because I'm doing an essay for our former sister publication, Time Magazine, on what has stakeholder capitalism missed? What are the forgotten issues, the issues that were left behind? Oh, I've I've got one for you. I, I'll 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 take yours in a minute, but sure. I, I, you, I'll give you I'll give you my four. I I, I identified four of them. One is uh, taxes, because at the same time these companies in the business roundtable have developed this new sense of stakeholder capitalism and positive contribution to society. They have these legacy organizations. The business roundtable itself has a large lobbying organization that are devoted to maneuvering, calculating lobbying to ensure the absolute minimum tax bill possible. And, and if you care about your impact on society, it can't be the right position to say, I want to pay as little or no taxes to support that society. So I think companies are going to have to rethink how they do taxation. I was told by one of the uh, CEOs of the, of one of the big four, um, that uh, they're starting to hear that, that people are starting to ask them not just what, what taxes do I have to pay, but what taxes should I pay? What, not just what's, the le- what's legally possible, but what's morally right. That's new and that's important. Wow. So that's okay. one thing. Okay. Two, I think CEO pay. Has to get some attention, you know. CEO pay has exploded. Instead of and instead of thirty or forty times the average worker, which is what CEOs made a couple decades ago, they now make three hundred or four hundred times the average worker. Um, much of that has been has come from stock incentives, and shareholders are, for the most part, if it's done correctly, are fine with that because the shareholder says, "Look, if you're making me lots of money, I'm okay with you making lots of money." But I'm not sure society is fine with that. In in a world where inequality is increasing, I just think they're there, and where CEOs are asking for more trust to step up and deal with these hard social problems, I'm not sure a system that compensates them at 300 times the rate of the average person is is gonna be accepted. So I, I think that's a problem that they kind of hide from and they need to figure out a better way to address it. The third is the whole voting rights debate in the U.S. You know, before the last election, uh, a lot of CEOs were standing up and saying it's our position. One of the things we value is making sure everybody votes. The more people who vote, the better off we are. And we're in favor of that. But then after the election, when this became the flashpoint for the kind of the fiercest partisan debates, it got a little squishy. I mean, uh, Ed, Ed Bastian of Delta and James Quincy of Coca-Cola and uh, came out against the Georgia voting rights law, but then they kind of got quiet. And I think uh, because they because they don't want to be in a Bob Chapic situation, they don't want to be in the middle of a political brawl. So, uh, so they haven't quite figured out how to reconcile the value, which is the more people who vote, the better, with the fact that if they articulate that value, they suddenly find themselves in the fiercest political fight of all, and they don't want to be in that fight. And then the last one is uh, China. China. Okay. It's China. Okay. What if, if if companies have values, what do, you, what do you do when you're operating in a system whose values are completely different from yours? I mean, we know what stakeholder capitalism means in China. There is one stakeholder that matters. It's Xi Jinping, the man who runs the the society. And so uh the I think the it, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has really thrown that into high relief. And a lot of companies and a lot of boards are saying, geez. If this were China, where our business is, by the way, 10 or 20 times larger than it is in Russia, China invading Taiwan, what would we do? So I I think those are those are some of the big issues that have to be grappled with to make this big thorny
0: issues. I, I look forward to reading it Um, an issue I'd love you to consider is substance use disorder.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, it's uh, we actually work with um, a very small not for profit called Shatterproof, which I'd love to send you some background. But truly, um, now that you've had the um, decision in terms of all the opioid um, settlements, and you know, it's kind of like tobacco and substance use, it's, it's a partner with mental health. Yeah. And you saw that during the you know, there are one hundred thousand people died during the pandemic from substance use disorder. And now you've got fentanyl and other things that are just, you know, kids are going out to to like party on Saturday and they die. So that's one. It needs
1: support. It's a good one, Carolyn. I I, I don't think businesses has has, uh, fully come to terms with its role in the opioid crisis to begin with. I mean, particularly the some of the big drug distribution companies. Yeah, 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 who had the? They had all the data to know what was going on. That they were shipping like ridiculous amounts of opioids into West Virginia counties, uh, but they didn't take responsibility for.
0: It. This has been such a great conversation. Is there anything else that you would love to just end with? Um, you've been so gracious and generous with your time. You know, tomorrow's capitalists. You know, my search for the soul of business. Um, what's your parting
1: comment, Alan Murray? I guess the one thing that I would say, because I know there's a lot of cynicism out there, the one thing I would say is, I I, I don't think business can solve all our problems. I don't think business should solve all our problems. I don't think there's some kind of silver bullet going on here. I don't think greed has been eliminated. I don't think corporate corruption has been wiped off the face of the earth. But there is something going on here that is very significant and very real. And at the end of the day, it is a good thing. That's beautiful.
0: That is a great conclusion to a marvelous conversation.
1: Carol, thank you so much. This has been fun for me.
0: It's been great. So um, hopefully, you know what, I'd love to invite you back in maybe a year. Yeah. Um, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, Martin's been on the show at least a couple times a year, but you've got such a seat um, at the table. And I think that um, your voice, yes, you're a journalist, but I, I see you in a way like our Paul, our U.S. Paul Pullman. <laughs>
1: Which, well, that's a, that is quite a that is quite a compliment. Thank you.
0: Um, so so wonderful. So I, you know, every day I will now, come back. Oh, good. All right, then we got it, listeners. And so um, it's going to be a great show. I bet we all, we also do an ebook. So for our listeners, um, we always take our top twenty five on um, podcasts. We put in an ebook. It's like snackable, and we we put that out. And um, I bet you're going to be the number one most listened to because last uh. one it was Paul. So thank you, Alan Murray, um, CEO of fortune media you are a um, a knight in shining armor for business
1: oh thank you carol it was, a, it was a pleasure talking with you and thank you for everything you've been doing uh, much longer than i have by the way not not i i, I don't mean to as i said earlier i we're think i'm older young. than you are but you 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 gained your purpose earlier than i did I, I was very fortunate
0: to do that so um thank you thank you thank you and um, we, uh, we can't wait to have you come back. And listeners, please go to your favorite place where you listen to your podcast and rate us. We, you know, um, Alan's podcast has got a gazillion five stars. We need a few more gazillion five stars so that our purpose podcast, Purpose 360, sits alongside of Leadership Next because it, it's great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, should, Alan.
1: You? Should be everyone's must listens.
0: Oh, you're sweet. OK, thank you. Have a great day.
1: Thank you.